And that's the, I mean, a lot of people have said this, that's like a dangerous sign for a society when the jester can no longer mock, you know, the king or, or anyone, right? When the jester is in danger for mockery, you know, it's a bad sign for everyone, right? It means like we're at a kind of fever pitch. How weird was it to watch that, experience it, and then for the sake of this episode, watch Lynn Ramsey's Rat Catcher the next day? <laughs> it was definitely a one-two, one-two kind of punch. Oh my god! In, in, in a, completely. In when was the last time you saw Ratcatcher? Years ago. I don't know. I have very, very um, patchy memories of it. The only thing I can really remember is that, uh, like, the mice flying to the moon section, which I'd probably seen as a clip somewhere else, like since then. But that, you know, in the general vibe of, of the garbage strike. But I don't know. I have much more vivid memories of uh, Morvern Kalar, which must be her second film, I think. Um, the movie we're talking about is Ratcatcher. It was directed by Lynn Ramsey, who's a Scottish film director, writer, producer, and cinematographer. Her best-known films are Ratcatcher, Malvern Collar, We Need to Talk About Kevin, and You Were Never Really Here. And Malvern Collar was based on a... It was It's an adaptation of a book by Alan Warner, which came out in 1995, but I actually don't remember when that movie came out, because Ratcatcher came out in 2000. Yeah, it looks here like on Wikipedia it says Ratcatcher is 99 and then Morbid Kalar is uh, 2002. Okay. Both of those movies were like almost like a Bible to me. Like I loved Marvin Collar and I loved Ratcatcher. But the weird part is watching it again, like I, I like this, this flying rat part that you're talking about, I totally forgot about that. Like I just honestly remember the the tone of it, the mood of it, the atmosphere, the aesthetic of it. Like aesthetically, it looks a lot like uh, the film stock used for Buffalo 66. Maybe just to get everybody on the same page too, to tell, should say what Ratcatcher is about, but it takes place in Glasgow during this garbage strike that happened in 1973. And it follows this 12 year old boy whose name is James. He's not a professional actor but he's amazing, great presence, great face. And his story is a coming of age story where he lives in this, this housing project where the tenants are being relocated someplace else out of this rat infested, decayed neighborhood that I guess the surrounding area of it is incredibly lush and it has this canal that runs through it where all the children play and act out. and it really captures the magic and the definitely some of the darker aspects of coming of age in a small town that's on the verge of dying on the vine. It's a great mood piece. It's funny because like, I never really remembered what the movie was about specifically. I knew it was about dislocation and decay and coming of age and seeing it this time around, especially after this interview we did with Megan Lamb about her book, Failure to Thrive, which has got a similar uh, tone to it. It definitely did. I mean, it made me think a lot about this feeling of that period between like late childhood and early adolescence, maybe like 10 to 15, which definitely the protagonist of this film is somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're old enough to sort of run wild and like not really be under the care of adults and when you have you know it's like the lord of the flies age when you have clicks and you have feuds and you have secrets 
but you're not really like a real teenager, like a 17 year old where you're, you know, driving and kind of like actually like somewhat living your own life. Like I feel like that particular sort of cusp of adolescence period has this like really sacred, yeah, and kind of menacing quality where you're almost existing in pure space without time in the sense that, you know, we talk in this interview with Megan Lamb a lot about this idea of animating atmosphere or the feeling of a place taking on a concrete form. And I think when you're that age, like 11, 12, 13, you experience the place where you live, whether it's a town or, you know, a city like Glasgow. And it's like you're most attuned to the atmosphere, I think, because you're out of your parents' control. So you're not just kind of dragging around with them, but you're not yet starting to think about why things are the way they are, right? So I think as an adult, you sort of experience time and space superimposed onto each other. So if you come to a town, you know, you learn about the history of it, or even in the film Ratcatcher, it's like, as an adult, we're sort of like, okay, well, all these rats are here because there's the garbage strike. And like all these buildings are abandoned because people are being relocated to a new housing project or something. You know, it's like we have these kind of tangible, political, historical ideas of why places are the way they are. Whereas when I think you're the age we're talking about, you don't know any of those things and you don't care about any of those things, but you do perceive something going on, right? So the atmosphere becomes really animated. And you, you know, like I remember growing up in Northampton, there was this abandoned men mental asylum, right? That there oh, are wow. th throughout <laughs> Massachusetts, like the film yeah, uh, yeah, Session yeah. 9. Yeah. Like people have seen that. I think it was actually shot in a different uh, asylum in Massachusetts, but it's a very similar kind of place. And I think now looking back on it, I can understand the history of, you know, when was it built and who ran it and why was it closed and what was the politics and all of that is hard for me to avoid. But as like a 12 year old, I just remember it as this place. And like, I was old enough, I never actually snuck into it, but I was old enough to sneak up to it and kind of look at the grounds and be haunted by it and perceive the atmosphere, but be free of any kind of normalizing story about why it was there or what it meant. In a, in a sense, that's like the purest feeling you can have about a place. From one, I think Lynn Ramsey really captures these moments where everything is like imbued with a sense of danger and a sense of magic. And she definitely tries to capitalize on the moments between sexuality and innocence. And not to say anything like rowdy goes down, but there's definitely some 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 tense moments that really illustrate that specific time in a in a young boy's age, but. There was a moment where my parents, when we first moved to Florida, moved to a housing development and it was all duplexes. And it was one of these places where every house looked the same and only half of them were built and surrounding it was a canal, like very much in this movie. It didn't run through it, but it surrounded it. I always have just these crazy memories of walking around the canal with this like one friend that I made with her BB guns and there being like alligators. I'd lived in Florida, but I hadn't lived somewhere where they were just like out there and there were turtles and there were herons and you would see snakes in the water. And it definitely had like this, the same vibe where I was like, I think most of these animals could actually kill me. I'm literally just running around here. There's the kids on the other side of the canal that look like they wanted to kick her ass. And then outside of that, we used to always run around in these homes. And I guess it was the opposite of Megan Lamb's book and the opposite of Ratcatcher in that 
the homes that I was running around in had never been lived in. They were empty new houses. And I th- I've definitely told this story once uh, on Wake Island with on an episode with Brian Evanson, but I'll say it again, because why not? Um, and this was like a really formative moment in my childhood, despite how like it's a bit of a non moment. But I remember when I was doing this, I was running around the canals doing whatever boys do, looking at frogs and trying to find alligators and just tripping out on how strange the whole thing was. When I got out of there, I couldn't find my house because all the houses looked the same. And I had this like moment of panic where I was just like, oh shit, like I don't know where my home is. And then I remember going to the back of a house, one of these duplexes, they all had patios and sliding the patio doors open and seeing uh, two lovebirds in a cage. And I had two lovebirds and they were the same color. And I was like, okay, I'm in the right house. Like this is my house. I remember coming in and we had just moved in as most of the people there had. So this house was mostly unpacked as well, but it definitely was not our shit. And there was somebody in there that was taking a shower. So I just assumed that was like my, my dad. And I just remember sitting down and just being in this stranger's house and just smelling a different home and just looking at stuff and being like, I remember as a kid just thinking like, oh, I can't believe my everybody did. my parents just bought new shit. Like that's incredible. Like and then just I remember kind of walking around and being like, you know, and I, and I was young. I must have been in like first or second grade, uh, which I think is same age as this kid in, in Ratcatcher, 12, 13, and slowly realizing I'm in a fucking stranger's home. Like I'm literally just walking around and and touching stuff which especially now in retrospect i'm like that could have probably got me shot and the and the person that owns the house is there taking a shower i remember running out and just going back home and never telling anybody about it but it being like this insanely formative experience that was just so (laughs) it just filled my mind with so much like wonder and magic and menace and I think those are all aspects that are captured in Ratcatcher and in Megan's book, Failure to Thrive. And I think when you're that age also, you don't, you know, you can have an experience like that and you don't know how strange it is. Like, you know, it's strange enough to be like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in a stranger's house. Like, you know, you can't just stay there. Like, you're not going to like walk in on that guy in the shower and be like, hey, dad, or, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? you have some, you maybe have some you could, I don't know. You you're know. Gonna, gonna, We're talking about gonna, Florida here. Weirder right, things that, have happened. That's some uh, Larry <laughs> Clark action. <right>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you, you're, you're trying to calibrate your sense of the world, right? That you don't quite know what can and can't happen, but it's like the first time that you're out there on your own. Right. Like you're not a child who's just being taken around, mm. but you're not yet the kind of adolescent who sort of has the run of the place or it's not like a you know James Dean kind of situation. Right. And it made me think also that there's something about the edge of coming into your own the, the way adolescence is. Right. You're sort of on the cusp of like being an actual member of society, you know, or it's like the first time that storekeepers like regard you suspiciously right <laughs> right like you're, you're the first time that you're like <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you know a potential criminal you know by yeah, and large yeah. like for most people right you're not a cute and, kid that people want to pet you're like oh this right. fucker might steal some shit 
Right. And even if you do steal some stuff, if you're like a five-year-old, you know, the person might get angry, but it's usually seen as like, they need to learn a lesson, right? Whereas if you're like a 12-year-old, it's like, all right, fuck this kid, <laughs> right? That, mm-hmm. you know? and, and it just made me think that like, you're on the cusp of, you know, the next phase. And at the same time, you're usually exploring the cusp or the outskirts of your town. Like there's something I think very sacred about, you know, canals and culverts and wetlands and like dead malls and parking lots and the like these woods places. yeah the woods yeah what, what when i was growing up we would call it the strip right that would sort of connect like the highway to the inner part of the town you know and just like mm. walking up past the grocery store and there'd be like the secret porn store that you try to like look in the windows and like run away and you know that kind of kind of thing you know and there's something I, I think where you're like balanced in some really interesting way between being who you are, like truly finding out who you are at that age, while also being in this fledgling state where you're kind of no one, like you're neither a kid nor a nation adult yet. Right, and I remember when I lived in Germany, I translated this book about Oedipus and a Sphinx. And the professor who wrote it like had a kind of similar idea where she said that like, the way that Oedipus solved the riddle of the Sphinx was by recognizing a mutual outsiderness or, or a um, borderness. Right, so Oedipus is like sort of this kind of weirdo from the provinces, but sort of also going to be king, right? So he's torn between those two things. And then he meets the Sphinx who literally guards the, guards the edge of town, right? Who sort of is the reason why you can't get into town, right? And then the Sphinx itself or herself is also this ambiguous figure that's part statue, part living being, part masculine, part feminine. You know, it's like all these sort of conflated categories so then according to this professor when the sphinx asks oedipus the riddle right if you know what walks in whatever two feet in the morning and four three feet in the that whole thing and oedipus answers you know the human being right or the man as he says this professor said well really what oedipus means is me oedipus like looks at the sphinx and is like i'm also someone on the edge of things and and has this moment of self-recognition where he's sort of like I'm the answer to your riddle, right? Like I'm the one you've been waiting for. And then of course the Sphinx lets him into the city and then the whole rest of the the story plays out. But, you know, in in this book, it's sort of like that's the um, initiation ritual, which is this kind of perfect metaphor for why teenageness is attracted to the edge of town. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great way to just introduce this book because it's not specifically about teenagers, but failure to thrive follows the interconnected stories of three families as they navigate the issues of disability, illness, and substance abuse in a former coal town where the landscape itself is sick. And it's a great way to set that up because I think um, we, we try to get into this in the conversation about animating atmosphere, but I think she does it so well. There's a quote by a past guest of the show, Blake Butler, and he says this about her writing, bridging the gap between dirty realism of Diane Williams and the uncanny ambience of Tarkovsky, Megan Lamb's All of Your Most Private Places, which is her previous book of short stories, is an astonishing debut, one that immediately defines her as a force of expectation bending, deep psyche fiction, culled from the most intimate off suppressed depths of who we are. Something that made me think from that is like the reference to Tarkovsky, you know, because in the interview we talk about 
this kind of strange relationship between the crumbling townscapes of Pennsylvania, which is where this novel takes place, and the crumbling town or cityscapes of Eastern Europe, right? We end up talking about Hungary mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, but I think someone like Tarkovsky is a really interesting example of someone who finds this kind of crackling magic in abandoned factories and kind of power stations. And it's just like concrete wasteland that's being reclaimed by vines or by forest in this kind of sacred spaces where, mm -hmm. you know, this atmosphere is there and it does come from history, but you can never know the history exactly. You know, and it's sort of something I've been thinking about a lot lately is related to these kinds of towns, you know, and we sort of talk about this with Megan also is like, on the one hand, there's this kind of fascistic tendency in these towns that have, you know, lost their honor and lost their industry in a very real way and lost their people a lot. The people who stay, you know, and she says this about uh, Orban in Hungary also, the people who stay have this kind of extreme pride, which can take on this kind of fascistic character, you know, and a hostility toward outsiders and this like, desire for redemption and all of that. Um, at the same time, I think there is something in that pride that that can have a beautiful quality of people who are really committed to living in places that, you know, rational people, so to, so to speak, you know, quote unquote, uh, have left a long time ago, right? There's a kind of beauty to the people who just like have stayed in these places for very intangible, but very real and meaningful reasons, you know? And, and it made me think that if you're someone who's hooked up to that atmosphere, either because it's where you're from or because it draws you in in some way, you find this way to like live in harmony with myth, you know? And I think there's something mythic about, about Routcatcher too, or about uh, Reflecting Skin, right? Which is another film that it reminded me of with like these images of the kids running through wheat yeah, fields yeah. and this sort of ominous, but really beautiful sense of like being in harmony with the place and almost being like the living embodiment of that place, right? So I think if you can experience myth as myth, like as a kind of truth, but a mythic truth that is tied to a certain place, you you know, there's something very healthy about that. And the two ways that it gets unhealthy, which almost relates to our last episode about uh, the possibility of a civil war, the two ways that gets unhealthy is either you try to dispel the myth entirely, right? And say, there just is no such thing as the mythic and you know, you're an idiot if you believe there is, or you try to enact the myth literally, right? And you say, we must actually, uh, you know, make whatever place great again, you know? But I think there's a kind of beauty in just living in the ruins and being like, this place like isn't gonna get great again, but there's something really beautiful about just living in that state if that's your calling. I wanna invite the listeners to come wander through the ruins of central Pennsylvania with us. Here's our interview with Megan Lamb. So I'm on Google Street View right now. As I, I tend to do this whenever I read a book that takes place in like a in a real location. I always love to get on Google Street View and like explore. And your where your book takes place is pretty specific. And you have some photos at the end. Right now I'm on the corner of Fern Street and Pennsylvania 61, and I'm looking at a place called the Pine Burr Inn. Mm -hmm. You have a photo of this place at the end of your book, and you also yeah, have I their menu. Have two. Yeah. yeah. And is, is this place the uncanny place that you were going to bring up? It is indeed. <laughs> wow. 
I'm on, I'm on, I'm on point today. <laughs> a lot of synchronicity yes, flying I'm, around. I'm very impressed. <laughs> so uh, yeah, tell me about this place. My ex-husband and I uh, were, he'd, he'd been working on, uh, or I don't know, he was working on a series of projects or possibilities toward projects. I, I don't know what he's doing with them now. We're broken up, but we were going to be in the core region for some reason. I forget why, but um, he suggested like, oh, uh, we need somewhere to stay in the core region uh, on New Year's Eve. Or I think we were going to Philadelphia for some reason, or we were going back through that area. Or his family is originally from Pottsville. Um, so he visited, and his mother is from um, uh, Cole Township, just outside of Shimokin. And this is in Pennsylvania, correct? Yeah, this is in Pennsylvania. Um, in the far west, like out by Pittsburgh or more central? Uh, more central, um, okay. in the uh, central Pennsylvania coal region. But um, we we looked up this place on Google uh, called the Pine Burren. It was like the only hotel in that part of the coal region. Uh, and it looked like an interesting like mid-century motel. Um, we're both into that kind of thing. So we stayed at this hotel. Um, we checked in and there was this uh, young woman who was like 18 or 19. She had moved to Mount Carmel from uh, Shimokin, which is like uh, less than a 10 minute drive down the road but she acted like she had like moved to another country <laughs> like mm -hmm. I was like so how long have you been working here and she's like oh I'm not from here um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh we stayed in this room and it was so cold like the heat wasn't working we could like see our breath in the mirror like uh we took videos of it uh and we like came down we were like, uh, we need a new room. The heat isn't working at all. It's like 40 degrees in that room. Um, and she came up with us and found a new room. And um, like, as she was uh, moving us from that room to another room, she took the mattress off the bed and put the mattress against the window. And she had this clipboard with like a little chart of all the rooms in the Pine Burr Inn. And she like X'd out that room and I noticed there were a lot of little X's on this chart. Anyway, the next morning, uh, which was New Year's Day, um, I went outside, there, there were no cars in the parking lot. Uh, the front desk area was all locked, like nobody was there. Um, I noticed eerily that there were mattresses against almost all of the windows. Um, there was something about that visual that was really striking and eerie to me like somebody had died but yeah there was like no way to check out like we weren't sure what we were supposed to do because no one was there there were no cars in the parking lot it was really eerie so two years later um, I got the Philip Roth residency at Bucknell University and I was uh, living for the spring semester in this house just off campus uh, which is just outside of the coal region. So I was writing a lot of this book then and um, visiting the coal region a lot. But I was doing some research um, on the Pine Marin and on different things that I was thinking about including in the book, um, kind of just idly Googling things, not sure if 
what I wanted to use or how I wanted to use it. And I learned that the owner of the Pine Burr Inn had died that night (laughs) that we were staying there. So we were literally there on the last night of the inn's existence as an inn. And I just felt like if I, if I wasn't sure about writing this book or finishing this book or including the Pine Burr Inn in the book, I I know that I have to now. (laughs) It's the only way out of the Pine Burr Inn is to finish the book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. That's like such a, like almost like tales from the crypt story, but it also, it must've felt like some sort of like divine intervention or synchronicity when you were in the world that, or mentally in the world that you were trying to create in this book, Failure to Thrive, and then having that happen. Like, what did that mean to you specifically? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I should say also, so when I was Googling and I found that he had died, I found this out by uh, Googling. And one of the things that came up about the Pine Burr Inn was this guy's obituary. Uh, and it kind of felt in a way this is very morbid thing to say, but like an obituary for the town <laughs> or like, like an obituary <laughs> for something broader. No. And it, it was definitely a lingering thing in the back of my mind as I was writing this book, I had actually um, visited the core region, like driven through it with him um, a couple other times previously. Yeah. I remember the first time uh he drove me through the coal region kind of like to show me like, this is where a lot of my family is from or like, um, I think, cause he knew, uh, I had a certain interest in decayed, formerly resplendent things and, um, that I would have some fascination with it. But, um, it reminded me a lot of, um, Decatur, Illinois, um, which is, as of a couple years ago, when I saw some Forbes list of like places in the US that everybody's moving out of, it was like, I think the second uh, most uh, fled city in terms of people uh, leaving it and no longer wanting to live there. Uh, wow, but why? Because it kind of like this area, it's like a former industrial city that doesn't have a lot going on and is just there's a lot of crime and like not a lot of anything. Um, it's just desolate place. There's a big uh, soybean processing plant uh, that it, it smells kind of like uh, burning trees all the time, but somehow not in a good way. <laughs> There's a certain <laughs> weird like smell of like burning mixed with like unidentifiable chemicals right right i smell sometimes on a weird day and like mi- mixed with amorphous filth <laughs> and it just <laughs> i think really oh, it. <laughs> oh oh it smells like decatur yeah um <laughs> but i i don't know decatur is also really flat and it's just kind of unillustriously disgusting um whereas the pennsylvania coal region um it really fucks with your mind because on some levels and in some ways it's really, really beautiful. Um, like it's in the mountains and they're like these weird bowls of towns uh, where like there's like 
mountains and like slag piles from the coal all around and like especially in the winter there's this interesting contrast between the snow and the coal and the starved trees and uh the buildings that are some of them are still uh beautiful buildings from the 1880s and like when the towns were in their heyday and some are just like totally falling apart and rotten and there, and then there are graveyards like going all the way up these mountains that really look like they're like about to collapse in on the towns. Um, but yeah, this is all to say, um, I think that driving through these towns the first time, uh, I was really struck by them because they reminded me of some of the places my family had grown up, but like a way more intense and also beautiful version of that. Like I felt like I identified with something in them, but they were also alien to me at the same time. And I'm always really interested in following feelings like that in my writing. But yeah, as as I worked on this novel more and more, obviously, like uh, that sense of connection grew and also that sense of alienation grew in a different way. And both of them kind of morphed and changed shape and meant something different to me. Oh, that, that seems like a super productive space to be in is to have like the right balance of alienation and familiarity or kind of second order familiarity. And it almost feels like the an analog of the precarious balance like of those graves going up the mountain or of the hotel, you know, being open but about to close. Like if you can kind of locate that tipping point, you know, which I think the book really does, like there's something very... Uh, alive in an undead sort of way about those kinds of spaces. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I very much wanted to write a book that honored those spaces and honored uh, some of the beauty I found in them um, while also being honest about the sickness of those spaces and exploring those spaces from the perspective of someone who felt a certain kind of uncanny intimacy and a certain kind of like intimacy by proxy, but not someone obviously who had grown up in the area who like belonged to the area. Um, like those books have been written before, um, books kind of like romanticizing the days of old in the coal region. Those books have all been written before. And I, I struggled a lot with the idea of writing this book as an outsider and not wanting to feel like I was creating a caricature of the area or um, being unfair to the area in my novel. But I think part of my way of navigating through that was exploring my own out outsiderliness through the book, um, if that makes sense. That's part of why I have those... Uh, frame sections that are very much written from the perspective of an outsider. It's just it's cool to hear you talk about it because like I thought a lot about this while reading the book and that I think we've all seen a lot of movies and read a lot of books where people are taking the the coal mining region of America or the south and they're trying to do something like Winter's Bone or you know something that's like either overly romantic, overly dark or in place of 
giving people nuanced complexity or giving the characters a sense of nuanced complexity they give their poverty a sense of nuanced complexity and like all the focus yeah. goes into being like they're not just poor people their poverty is like there's like integrity to it and then ultimately generally I just don't really care you know what I mean like if I'm going to read about this place I want to find the poetry of it especially you know, as somebody that lives close to this area and has driven through and comes from my own small shithole of a town. Oh, really? It, where are you from? I'm from a town called Loxahatchee, Florida. Oh, I know where that is. I, I, I don't know a lot of places in Florida, but I know where that is. <laughs> oh, wild. Yeah. So it's just like swamps. It's just, it's, there's really nothing there. There's no like stores or town. Um, it's dirt road. It's just, really in the middle of nowhere. It's funny because you brought up the smell of burning trees. Uh, where I grew up, I grew up by the sugarcane fields. So when they burn sugarcane, it rains ash, but it smells mm. like cotton candy. And it's like the most <laughs> like totally immersive Florida atmospheric thing to go through. <laughs> and I, I, I've written about it as well, but um, I don't know. I, I, I just think it's interesting that you were able to take a place that was dying on the vine and still honor it as a place that was meaningful to you, even though it was falling apart. So I'd love to just like hear more about that. Was that something that you were conscious of while you were writing the book? Yeah. And yeah, I really like what you said about um, like honoring the place as a place and like humanizing the people of the place rather than uh, focusing on their poverty and kind of like, uh, I, I think that's part of the advantage perhaps of writing a book like this as an outsider of the space that's still trying to honor it. You, you don't have the same like personal defensiveness about the poverty of the area. Like you can see it and you can have a lot of feelings about it, but it's not your place that you're trying to defend against the outsider me. Um, mm. So I, I think a lot of it for me was just um, following the sense of wonder and curiosity I had about certain spaces and investigating them more deeply and uh, investigating not just why I felt compelled to write about them or the role they were playing in my novel, but why, why this space haunted me or why a particular space haunted me. And I think that was part of the, the ethos behind or like the reason I felt compelled ultimately to write those three frame sections. Uh, so the spaces in the three frame sections, by the way, are uh, Centralia, Pennsylvania, uh, where there's this underground mine fire that's been burning for 60 years and is expected to burn for at least 200 more. Um, and then um, the second uh, section refers to this, um, a, well, it's an abandoned school. It like no longer functions as a school, but there's a guy in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, who's trying to turn uh, this old school, the J.W. Cooper School, into a kind of community center <laughs> um, and and he's done really interesting things with it like it's it's a falling apart dilapidated school but um the front part of it has working electricity and um bands come from all over um 
and they shoot music videos there. He has like a dressing room in the basement where uh, people uh, like put things together for their music videos. And- <laughs> Are these all like industrial music videos? Some of them are. There was like a metal band that played there. It unfortunately the music is not very good. Uh, <laughs> but but good bands. Uh, hi, if a good band is listening to this podcast, you need to shoot a music video in the former J.W. Cooper's School in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania. Uh, <laughs> they're really nice. They'll hook you up. But the space has an interesting history too. Um, I mean, you learn about it if you read the book, but it was uh, a hospital in a morgue during the Spanish flu, um, like while the school was actually still being constructed, um, they kind of had to pause construction of the school as a school and use it as a makeshift hospital for everyone that was getting sick and dying in the town. Um, so that was like the second place that really haunted me. And the third place was this um, Uh, It was called Concrete City. It was like this, um, it wasn't a company town exactly. It was kind of a company town for um, this uh, coal company's railroad division. But um, it was was kind of like the first model of this kind of community. It was like a really, um, these beautiful minimalistic, or I think they look beautiful, but I tend to think that brutalist structures and things that look kind of like army barracks are really the the height of art, architectural beauty. No, likewise. Um, <laughs> but it's it, it's really strange looking. There's just this uh, compound in like a a big rectangle of uh, different rectangular barracks looking buildings in the middle of these woods. Um, and that was Concrete City. And when you go there now, um, there's graffiti all over the place. And there's just like this detritus from people who have uh, done different things there. Like a lot of it seems to be teenagers like going back into the woods to do whatever secret things teenagers do back in the woods, drink, do drugs. All the fun stuff. Yeah. and. Like I, I would see spaces like this and I would just wonder like, what would it be like to be a teenager in this area? And like, it's the weekend or you're looking for a place to go hang out with your friends uh, outside the prying eyes of adults. And you have this whole concrete compound <laughs> of buildings that you can go back and disappear into. Oh, um, I think it would be an especially exciting and kind of like disorienting moment to be a teenager in one of those towns right now because it's like on the one hand you know the world is more modern and more you know technologized than it was when we were teenagers but also these towns probably feel more more ancient than they did you know 10 or 20 years ago in some ways right or more empty yeah exactly and time must feel really weird like growing up in those towns And that was also part of what I think inspired me to write the third uh, story in the, in the novel or the third section, (laughs) focusing on the character who leaves the town, uh, but then has a traumatic brain injury and has to come back. Um, My ex-husband actually had a friend who, um, he left uh, the area he was from in Pennsylvania and 
he was he was living this whole other life but he did so many drugs and like partied so much that his brain was like completely fried and he had to go back home and like live with his parents and recover and I think him telling me this story or like hearing this story secondhand from him uh, after seeing these towns made me really wonder like what would it be like to go back to one of these towns and feel like everything is familiar, like also like stuck in the same way that it was, but it also like has this whole different resonance now that you've been elsewhere. And now you're stuck there, but you also have no like anchor to yourself or the town. Yeah. The town has changed. It has this different resonance and you feel like you should as well, but you've kind of squandered those years, like fucking around and, and doing drugs. And, and now you're back. It must be such a like extreme feeling of free fall. And shame. You know, it's like my friend from upstate New York, he was talking about the idea of like the myth of going to Hollywood and being like the one person who's like, I'm getting out of here, you know, and I'm going to be famous. So whatever. he's like, you know, if you leave and that doesn't happen, you know, you really can never come back, right? If you come back and then everyone's like, you know, kind of knows you, but you missed, you know, whatever kind of years of young adulthood that the people who stayed were sort of cementing their community with each other. Like you're always kind of a pariah, right? Cause like you thought you could get out and then, you know, it has like a quality of a kind of mythic curse of some, some sort of a force field that calls you back. Yeah. What, what hubris you got, what you deserved. Right. Exactly. And, and yeah. everyone in town knows it. LA swallowed you up and spit you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. For one, you know, I, I recommend people read this book, Failure to Thrive. But while I was reading it, it's funny because I generally like to have the TV on in the background. While I was reading it, I had on a, just like a marathon of interventions playing. And it was like this perfect- That's wild. <laughs> yeah, it was like a really perfect like companion piece to it. And not to say like this book is about addicts or drug people on drugs or something like that. That show, part of what I love about it so much and what I, you know, like so much about your book and why I asked you about uh, that movie Ratcatcher as well is that, and it also goes back to this, uh, that TV show Cops is I just love walking into people's homes. Like as a kid, I didn't have as many wow. abandoned homes to mess around in, but I definitely had some and some abandoned trailers. And like, that was maybe one of the most formative experiences I've ever had as a child and something that I, you know, I still try to do every, every now and then, but I love having those shows on in the background just because it's so interesting to be like, just to go into somebody's home that isn't, you know, isn't expecting a camera crew. And, you know, I don't want to get into how potentially uh, exploitive and terrible those shows might be, but just as an, as an aesthetic, there is something really um, captivating about that that felt like um, just such a great companion piece to the book. I, I have watched that show, Intervention. Um, I went through a period um, uh, from like 2010 to 2011, I had this weird neuropathy in my left leg. Um, it, it, it was diagnosed in the sense that uh, my left leg essentially stopped working for um, a little over nine months. Uh, wow. And I went to the neurologist and they said, uh, yeah, you have a, a perineal neuropathy uh, the whole, um, the perineal nerve in your left leg uh, going from your bottom 
toe of your left foot, like up to the middle of your thigh is totally demyelinated. That's why you can't control it. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, like I, I went through a period where I was working from home because I couldn't really walk so I couldn't do the job I had had before. Um, and I was, uh, I was a real estate copywriter, but I was uh, writing copy for uh, these neighborhood pages for Baird and Warner about uh, different houses that were for sale in different neighborhoods in Chicago. Um, <laughs> some of them were like kind of run down properties that were being sold for like uh, just the plot. Um, but while I was writing all of this stuff, I would have intervention on the background. Oh, crazy. Uh, now that I think about it, like it was probably kind of formative, like looking at these houses while having that show on in the background. Yeah, it's in it's intensely heady. But yeah, the the story I wanted to tell you about related to real estate, um my my ex-husband was actually um while I was at Bucknell University and working on this novel um he wanted to work on kind of like a a memory project whom like self-discovery project or like kind of like i don't know just exploring spaces in the core region he's a filmmaker and uh we got in touch with uh this realtor in the area um maria Bresti in shimokin pennsylvania she runs this organization or ran this organization that sadly no longer exists called Coal Region Vegans. Uh, this organization wasn't very big as you can imagine, uh, <laughs> but we were looking for a vegan gathering while we were in the Coal Region. Uh, and we happened upon Maria Bressi, who also uh, runs um, this real estate agency, uh, Bressi Martin out of Shimokin that sells a lot of houses in the Coal Region. Um, but yeah, I think in the course of asking her about vegan options in the coal region of Pennsylvania, um, she organized this opportunity to let us uh, come into these old houses and these kind of like crumbling, beautiful houses that she saw a lot of uh, interesting beauty in, in the area. Um, and some of the houses, actually all of the houses in, in the book are based on things that I saw uh, going around these houses with Maria while we were in Shimokin. Um, that staircase with the different colored uh, carpet squares in the third part, that was a real staircase. The window uh, with the weird message on it that's in the second part, uh, that was actually on a window that I found. Um, I took a bunch of pictures of it and I thought that has to end up in the book somehow. When I was done reading the book, you know, I said like, um, I love going on Google Street View and, and especially if, you know, I can pinpoint where certain places are and if I can locate them on the map. But if you go to YouTube, I had actually looked up Shimokin, Pennsylvania and um, Shenandoah, Pennsylvania. And what comes up are exclusively videos, like homemade videos of teenagers yes. walking through abandoned <laughs> homes. And I found them to be just so like, especially after reading the book, so like kind of like meditative because all of them are whispering. They're very like, you know, they're very cautious. Like it definitely feels a little bit dangerous. And, I, you know, my question is about 
the the homes that you're writing about because if you look up Shenandoah Pennsylvania the first thing that comes up is this place called Shenandoah Woods which is like an old neighborhood that I believe that was used by the military and it was like housing for naval air unit and the entire neighborhood closed down in 1997 because there was uh, pollutants in the water and like asbestos in the walls and I think it became like dangerous to like tear it all down because of all that and it also became too expensive of a project to rehabilitate so it's just there and it's wild because it's just like an entirely preserved neighborhood that is completely empty and everything has just you know graffiti and there's just teenagers you know basically running around in there but have you ever heard of this place I strangely enough have not. I will oh, wow. have to take a visit there next time I'm in the area. But there, there are so many weird little uh, former communities and communities like that in the area that have just been like chewed up and spit out by industry of one kind or another. And now there's just this eerie, beautiful shell that exists. I wonder if it's like a generational shift that's kind of like post tragedy, you know, that like there was an older generation who had to mourn, you know, the closure of the yeah. factories and the coal mines and the loss, of, you know, the actual mm. human tragedy of it. But like people who are teenagers now can appreciate it almost like a facet of nature. Like these places just exist and they're a little, a little bit decoupled from like the specific tragedy that produced them in the first place. I, I wonder a lot about the perspective of uh, young people in the area uh, who come from families that have like this other layered understanding of the space who are uh, either in mourning or uh, a lot of them I think are in a kind of denial about it. Um, like they, they talk about these places like uh, they focus on like the positive aspects of the history and they a lot of them act like or talk about um, the area like uh, it's still a great place to live, except for the drugs. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. They, they don't want to talk about uh, the economics of living in the area or the uh, reality of living in an area that no longer has any jobs. Or, um, but but they'll talk about uh, the scourge of the opioids. But yeah, I wonder. And I, I think part of that comes from the defensiveness, like the, and the, the desire perhaps to honor their history or um, not wanting the area to be like exploited by people who are curious, but don't have some kind of understanding of the history. But I wonder how it feels to be a child of one of those families that is kind of in this state of denial, like growing up in this other reality that is just the just the weird dilapidation like you didn't experience anything when it was in a different state um and just like getting back onto the book i feel like the book is this mix of of prose straight narrative and there's some experimental parts but did you have any non-literary influences that were really important to you because like i said when i was reading it i thought a lot about that movie rat catcher yeah definitely i mean aside from the places themselves i spent a lot of time looking at um 
this photo archive, uh, which I highly recommend to anyone listening to this podcast, um, compiled by Larry Deklinski. Um, I forget what the archive is actually called. Uh, there are these watermarks on all the photos that say Delato photography. Um, but if you if you Google uh, Larry Deklinski coal region photographs, uh, this site will come up. And it's basically, it's a website full of um, both photos that he's taken of the area and like um, old photos that he's compiled from all of the coal towns. Um, and there are like different genres, like different categories, like there's a religion genre and there's like a, like a genre for like industry and like businesses in the area. That, that's also a lot of those photos um, turn up in one way or another are echoed in some of the details in the novel. But after the Pine Burin incident, um, I had this hunger for images of what the town used to look like that weren't being like filtered through the imaginations of people who lived there or used to live there, but just like uh, an archive of old photos. And this archive was really nourishing for me. How so? Like, what, what did they look like? Did it, was it like a bustling town in the past? It was, and it was also seeing like spaces that are now decayed or have been repurposed into something else as what they originally were. Like the um, the main library in Shimokin used to be a department store. It was like oh, a, wow. it was a really beautiful department store, but I I think it's so interesting like going into that space as it is now, knowing uh, not only what it used to be like, but like the building is stu still there and it used to be something else. Um, I always just find that really interesting. And there's also kind of the mystery of like uh, going around these towns and seeing cool looking buildings that are kind of falling apart and wondering what they used to be. And you kind of like go through these photo archives and you try to like find clues of what it used to be or like you squint at pictures and you're like, uh, is, is that, that thing that I saw before, uh, can I tell what it used to be from the picture? Or, um, yeah, and then there's the uncanniness of it too, of course, like seeing uh, seeing people like looking like they're having a good time and <laughs> looking like they have hopes for the future. Like the, uh, <laughs> mommy, mommy said Pompeii or something. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying in this podcast not to sound like I'm coming down too hard on the area or I'm being too negative, but you, you can't help it after a point. Yeah, I'm <laughs> it's, sure. It's really soul crushing. Oh, like I said, I mean, I know the feeling having written about my own town, it's like at a certain point, you're like, there, there is poetry in it, but you have to really be like brutally honest with yourself and how you feel about it and how you function in it but just to like get like I, I definitely just have so many um stylistic questions for you too because like I read your other book as well of uh short stories and what I think that you do that's really interesting in both of these and not to say that there isn't plot but I'm curious how do you animate atmosphere in place of plot to like move the story along I think it's something that you do like really well that is a hard thing and it might be a hard question to answer as well but I'm curious to hear what you have to say I 
I, I'm just taking a moment to wrap my mind around the beauty of that uh, articulation anime atmosphere. I <laughs> I love that, uh, and I'm really grateful for that description. Um, I I guess now that I think about it, and now that I think about um, this novel in terms of my collection, I do this a lot where I. I go to a place or I have like a place that I travel to or a place that I live in for some temporal reason or like for a liminal period of time. Uh, and it'll remind me of somewhere else or like it'll trigger associations with something that I haven't thought of for a while. Or There's something about being in a new place that fascinates you um, or a newish place that fascinates you, where you're going around and you're discovering places and wondering over it, that I think naturally triggers uh, memory in a certain way, or like uh, rekindles memories that you haven't reflected on in a while. Um, the newness, the combination of newness and also seeing things that are familiar, but in a new light, like recognizing them in some other space. It's like you feel like you're getting back in touch with yourself in a way, right? Or things that you yeah, don't yeah. remember, don't know you've forgotten, you suddenly remember, right? And I think that's a big part of why people like to travel or why some people like themselves a lot better when they're traveling. My ex-husband was certainly one of those people. I would say that he was even kind of addicted to traveling, <laughs> but uh, because he couldn't necessarily deal with himself when he was in a stable place for too long. But I... I think there's something about uh, that feeling of recognizing fragments of things and other things that um, triggered the structure for a lot of the things that I wrote um, in terms of like being rooted in a place, but um, like kind of animating atmosphere. Sorry, I'm just still mulling over that. Um, well, is it like, I don't know, this is once again, just totally subjective, but like it felt to me like there, especially in this one in Failure to Thrive, there was this idea of escape, but it wasn't like people are like trying to leave the town or like do drugs and like get away from it, but where you take the idea of escape and you give it the form of aching or longing. To me, those three things are all like, they're all kind of the same thing, especially when it comes at least once again, in my opinion, um, when it comes to living in America, a lot of times, especially in towns like this. And, and I think there's a kind of a running a thread in everything I write, I guess, um, about people who um, want to communicate or want to connect with one another, but don't have the tools or capabilities or whatever they need to connect. Um, and they feel isolated within themselves or they feel like they're experiencing something that they don't necessarily have the language for. Um, so, and, and when you're in that kind of a state, uh, when you feel that sense of isolation, you don't have the language for it. You can't like commune with people around you. Uh, you kind of exist in your thoughts uh, walking around and looking at things in your environment and like seeing traces of those thoughts in what's around you, but just kind of observing what's around you for lack of better way to um, 
give voice to what's inside of you. I guess that's kind of that's kind of the sense in which I try to animate atmosphere, or I at least see my compulsion to animate atmosphere in what I'm writing. Does does that answer your question at all? I get that it was like it's a very nebulous question, but it was great that was to hear a you talk question. about it. It's one of those I'm going to have to think about. <laughs> <laughs> and is is there like a, a landscape that you're being drawn to now? What's next for you? Is there like, um, a new atmosphere you're trying to pierce or move into? So I was solicited uh, <laughs> mm. by this horror anthology uh, to write a horror story, even though I don't necessarily, I, I've never written a horror story that I've identified or like, sought to write as a horror story before uh-huh. and the guy who solicited me kind of said like uh I know this isn't normally like you don't write genre fiction or this isn't normally necessarily like the realm in which you write but I I feel like there's kind of like a horror tension or uh horror atmospheric tension in a lot of what you write and it would be cool to see that maybe just pushed a step further totally or per se um and I, I thought it was an interesting challenge. Like, like I do when I'm conceiving of most things, I, I think of the landscape or like where I want the piece to be as I'm imagining it and trying to figure out what the thing of the story is going to be. And I usually feel compelled to write about like a place that I lived in or visited for a long period of time, like two or three or four places ago, uh, because that's about the level of distance I need to process things. But I really, I wanted to write uh, something set in Eastern Europe for a while and kind of like use fiction as a way. I'm also sort of touch and go working on a book that deals with my experiences living in Hungary and traveling around the Balkans and also trying to map that in some way on my experiences living in Pennsylvania. Uh, but that's a very down the road thing. Uh, this horror story that I'm working right now though is kind of uh, set in an unidentified Eastern European place that's an amalgam of places, but mostly Budapest. Um, Budapest is, it's like a falling apart music box of a city. It's so beautiful. Um, it's like somewhere like Prague or Paris, but with a layer of grime that I find a lot more inviting and welcoming. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just about the most beautiful place in the world. It was what inspired me to move to Hungary, which was not a great life decision, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the kind of city that's so resplendent it can inspire or it, it beckons you to make poor life decisions. <laughs> no, uh, no, no fine city could uh, could boast any less. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yes. Pretty well. Have you ever read um, The City and the City by China Mieville? Uh, no. It's pretty interesting. It's sort of based on Budapest. It's like a made-up situation, but it's like two cities that are superimposed upon each other so that half the residents believe they live in one and deny the existence of the other and half vice versa. And it's kind of like a mystery situation where somehow someone is killed in one, but ends up in the jurisdiction of the other. So it becomes this almost like science fiction detective story of this detective trying to discover how the two cities actually relate, even though it's a kind of heresy to even suggest that both cities exist. 
Yeah, I'm looking it up now. This looks right up my alley, certainly. Yeah. is quite an apt setting for, for that kind of a narrative, certainly. I wonder if there's a connection actually between Eastern Europe and like the deep interior of America now in that they're both, you know, sort of after the fall kind of situations in a way, they both have these like extreme right-wing tendencies, but they also maybe have this like volatile youth energy at the same yes, time. Yes, like there are parts of the coal region that remind me a lot visually and atmospherically of Eastern Europe. And that was part of, I think, like the drive to like write this book that somehow uh, connected my experiences of living in those two uh, superficially very different places, but beneath the surface uh, places that have a lot of resonances and resemblances. Certainly in terms of like people kind of living in a pocket or like living in the confines of a certain area their whole lives and developing weird ideas about the rest of the world <laughs> within that pocket. Yeah, and like those ideas are both sinister in that they can be like hateful toward the rest of the world, but also create this like deeply intrinsic culture where like people really do like remain Absolutely. in a certain place like way longer than like you might think it would be possible to stay there. Yeah, and also like breeds a certain kind of pride and a certain kind of like defensiveness, like especially in, in like Hungary, like arguably, or not even arguably, definitely. Uh, that's how uh, the Fidesz party happened. And that's why uh, Viktor Orban has the power that he has. Um, he basically owns all of the media in Hungary. Um, he's, he's like Trump, if Trump were very smart and could be indefinitely reelected. Um, <laughs> and, and if the US were very small. <laughs> yes. Um, but there's this kind of lingering nationalism and romanticization of national identity, um, which not surprisingly uh, leads to uh, suspicion of immigrants and defensiveness against Hungarian culture for Hungarians against uh, infiltrators, which is a big thing that Orban plays on. But yeah, I would meet people in Hungary that would be very critical of Trump and talk about what an idiot he was in one breath. And then they would talk about how Viktor Orban was the savior of Hungary in the next breath. Oh, man. <laughs> Do you think that, you know, when you were talking about maybe, maybe actually both areas, you know, Hungary and the, the coal area uh, as proxies for where you grew up, do you feel like it has shed light on your own growing up in a way that is different than if you had written about it directly? Yeah, perhaps that's actually though another uh, another layer, I guess, of the investigations or the um, interest in writing this novel about a place that I feel some amorphous connection to, but I'm also an outsider from like, Decatur was one of those places like I had like a family connection to it, but I, I was not from there. And I always had this curiosity about what it would be like to live in this kind of desolate place that I saw a lot of, but I wasn't from. I briefly entertained the idea of uh, living in Decatur for a while. Um, when I was thinking of where to move uh, after moving back from Hungary and being in quarantine and meeting 
somewhere to move after that. But the idea of that was just too depressing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I was kind of curious about what it would be like to live there though, like to see if I would have any revelations about how one place is mapped onto another place and like how my understanding of this place might have changed after my experiences of these other places. Yeah, sorry, that doesn't answer your question at all. No, I think, and there is something interesting about continue, you know, like you're going back to Pennsylvania a couple of times, something about returning to these, you know, sites of unease or of intrigue or, you know, places that speak to you to go back after having been to other places in between. It's like it keeps adding layers in a way that seems like it can be really productive. Yeah, there's there's the layer of being or the layers of being in different places and seeing uh, signs or resemblances of other places in the place where you are. And then there's the the overlaps that you experience in your memory, um, which are potent in a different way. But um, I wish I had something more salient to say about those connections because there's something that's been percolating in my head a lot, but I don't know that I've ever landed on. I, I've, I've also kind of set, <laughs> set those questions aside for a while. Um, after I left Pennsylvania, I kind of, it, and it's funny, like after I left Pennsylvania, like right after I left, uh, the book was published and, uh, I kind of didn't want to deal with Pennsylvania anymore or think about the coal region anymore, but I was kind of <laughs> obligated to because this book was published. Um, <laughs> and, and the press is in Pennsylvania, right? Yes, the, the press is in Philadelphia. Right. <laughs> um, I will actually be meeting the press this uh, Sunday. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah strange I coincidence. I haven't met Ben in person, but he seems like a great guy. Yeah, likewise. I have also never met him. I'm just I just happened to be going to Philly this weekend and was like, I, I thought he lived there. I wasn't sure. So I asked and I was like, well, cool. Let's let's go to a crazy dive and see what happens. Yeah, I think a big part of the reason I also. I, I kind of struggle to wrap my mind around a lot of questions that are implicit in thinking about the book that I I have thought a lot about just because my relationship to these ideas has changed so much and the changes and the ideas themselves are so wrapped up in my marriage that ended and I'm actually in the end stages of getting a divorce uh but it's it's been a <sighs> it it's been one of those where uh, there was a lot of the same processing or uh, overlapping processing going on between the two of us about shared experiences. But I think that processing happened at very different points in our relationship. And I think he's just now thinking about a lot of things and having a lot of realizations that I had years ago in past situations living in the coal region. <laughs> um, it's odd to look at um, some of those sections of the novel dealing with uh, the kind of the friction and uh, 
communication lapses and falling apart of the marriage in the first section, especially um, because so much of that was based on my marriage as I was experiencing it at the time. <laughs> and uh, even though like, I wasn't navigating the questions that um, Emily in the in the first section is navigating uh, in conjunction with living in or having grown up in the area. I was living in the area and feeling a lot of those feelings about different things uh, and pulling a lot of that directly from from the friction I felt inside of me. Um, yeah, even now kind of uh, giving this interview, I'm I'm very aware of what I'm saying about that relationship and I'm really anxious about what I'm saying about that place uh, because I'm kind of anxious he might listen to it and say that I lied or I misrepresented it somehow or I, I was unfair to the place. <laughs> um, but it's the place yeah. in your mind and in your heart, you know what I mean? Like we're not talking about that place like, giving a definitive uh, travelogue of what it is. As in any relationship, uh, two different people have their own different experiences and understanding of things. But do you think it's important that you wrote your way through the place and not like writing about the place? That's kind of the, the feeling that I walk away with from speaking to you and reading this book. I'm, I'm really glad you got that feeling. Uh, that's that's the feeling I think I want to have about it myself. And, and the feeling I, I think I ultimately do have. I think I emerged from writing the book with a dual sensation of like relief and satisfaction that I had wrote my way through the place and almost like guilt. Like, oh, I wrote this book. Now it exists. Now it's out of me and I'm leaving the place. But there are the characters that I wrote that are still in the place and there are the people who actually exist in the place who are still in the place. Um. <laughs> it's like a kind of survivor's guilt that somehow they, yeah. they were trapped so that you could leave. It's kind of a survivor's guilt by proxy. Yeah, it's a really yeah. weird feeling. But does it also have a sense of catharsis to it? Uh, I want to say it does. <laughs> I think what felt catharsis more than anything, honestly, was the the last move, hopefully, the, the, the last most recent and the last of all time <laughs> living uh, in the coal region. Um, I went around these places that I'd been going around to with my ex-husband when he was working on his various projects and kind of like when I was there with him, I felt like they were being narrativized through the, him, or I was like receiving all this information about these places through them, him and like experiencing these places through him and kind of trying to like navigate through and like parse through my own feelings about things like in conjunction with like learning about them through him and learning about his feelings about them. But being there without him, this last, last time um, and like revisiting some of these places and going to some new places on my own and uh, taking my own photo documentation and re-examining them in my novel. Like I felt like I had the opportunity to claim them in some way, like 
claim them for my outsiderliness. Um, that, that felt very cathartic. Taking those photos, uh, those Polaroids that appear at the end of the book was very cathartic for me. Well, I want to urge anyone listening to this to look at Central Pennsylvania through the lens of Megan Lamb in this book. I think that's the most cathartic thing that could happen is that this place now will exist in the minds of other people through your eyes. So hopefully you can turn the page on it.